Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and land covered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. All right, so after Noah's sons are mentioned, we find Noah in a rather interesting state. Upon leaving the ark, um, and after sacrificing to God, as we saw a lot, uh, previously, he then begins to work on the soil. That is, he was like the first Adam um, in working the ground, just as Adam worked the ground, so now Noah is. And as Adam was placed in the garden to care for it, Noah then plants a vineyard, and he cares for that. Now, at this point, the story again becomes interesting. We see that the righteous and blameless Noah drank of the wine and became drunk. This is hardly what we would expect of the individual who survived the flood. Um, Still, we find this to be the case. In his drunken stupor, he lay uncovered, uncovered in his tent. And this presumably means that he was naked in his tent. Um... Now we come to the second interesting event, and that is the reaction of Ham. Again, we learn that Ham is the father of Canaan. And again, an interesting facet in the story, since Canaan, the person, has not made an appearance in the story at all, except by name. So just think of that for a second. Canaan isn't even there yet. According to the story, he's just mentioned over and over. But what is it that Ham does? Well, we learn what it says. He saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, in some sense, this story makes sense. Um, We already know that Noah was uncovered in his tent. The problem comes with the terminology with saw his father's nakedness. If we take it at face value, it simply means that Ham, the son, saw Noah naked. Unfortunately... We also have the law in Leviticus 18. There we find, and I want you to hear this, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You will not uncover the nakedness, her, uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. Leviticus 18. Be confused. Everyone confused? I'm confused. I'm going to be confused at the end of all this. Um, What does this text imply from Leviticus 18? To uncover the nakedness of someone in Leviticus means to have sexual relations with them. Um, In particular, to uncover the nakedness of your father would be to sleep with one's mother. In other words, to have an incestuous relationship or an incestuous act. This means it is possible that what we read in Genesis is Ham, knowing his father is drunk, sleeps with his mother, and then takes advantage of her in some way. Now, if you're thinking, okay, before everyone says, okay, that's really dark for the scriptures, this isn't even the darkest story in the scriptures, go read Judges. Um, So, the end of Judges actually has the worst thing that happens, in my opinion, one of the worst things. But that is a possibility. Now, is this the only interpretation? No. No. There are those who have offered a great many different interpretations relating to the incident. Some believe that Ham did something sexual to Noah himself. Others have said it's possible that Ham um, actually did something really bad, castrated Noah, 
Hence, Noah only having uh, three sons and no others mentioned, the way the rest of the people in his Talodot say. Or it could simply be the most well-known view that Ham saw Noah naked and made fun of him to his brothers. Mocked the circumstances to Shem and Japheth. This is all possible. Um, as honoring one's parents even prior to the law being given was considered a serious duty. And later on, to treat one's parents in such a dishonorable way would have serious repercussions. Someone would be stoned if they treated their parent in such a way. Um, Still, despite Ham's reaction, we find Shem and Japheth both doing the more honorable deed, the more um, faithful deed, by seeking to cover up their father's nakedness. Now, some might take this as a good argument that only Noah was naked, but the truth is it could still be referring to Noah's wife, who needed to be covered up herself after Ham. Um, Though it could simply be that they were covering up Noah, we really aren't sure. Ultimately, Shem and Japheth do the right deed by covering up whoever needed to be covered up. They did it in such a way as to keep themselves from potentially dishonoring their father and or mother, going so far as to walk backwards with the robe on their shoulders. Clear as mud, (laughs) as Mike would say. Um, So basically, though, what we are seeing are sons who are being honorable versus a son who is not honorable. That's the best I can give you for that part of the story. Now, that would be the best if that were the only complication. Now we come to this part. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall, be, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Does anyone see a problem here at all? You'll see. At this point, scholars are generally at a loss. We notice Noah awaking from his drunken stupor found out what his youngest son had done to him. The question which will never be answered is, first of all, how does he know? Does he find out from Shem or Japheth that Ham mocked him while he was drunk, asleep, or naked? Or does he find out from his wife that Ham had taken advantage of her when she was drunk and, while he was drunk and asleep and naked? We can't be sure. But this is where it gets even more interesting again, and that is with the curse. This is the first curse uttered by a human in the scriptures. All the curses thus far have been from God against the land and against humans. Here, however, we find a curse from one human to another. So who receives the curse? If you're thinking Ham, no, it's not Ham. Um, yep, it's Canaan. Canaan gets the curse. Throughout these verses, we have been repeatedly told, Ham is the father of Canaan. Now, instead of Ham receiving the curse for what he had done, Canaan receives the curse. The question we should all be asking is, why does Canaan get cursed? It is even more perplexing as Canaan is not the oldest of Ham's Ham's sons, but is the youngest. Why is it that Canaan, out of the sons of Ham, is singled out? Um, Why not all the descendants of Ham? Why not Ham himself? We don't know. (laughs) We're going to talk about that. Um, Now, the simplest answer is this. Again, we don't really know for sure. 
I, I can't give you a 100%. I am 100% sure this is the case. Um, it could be that Canaan was privy to his father's insolence, and because of this, Noah curses the son rather than the man. It could also be a way of cursing Ham in that the son will amount to being a slave to Shem and Japheth. It could be assuming that the nakedness of his father implies Ham slept with Noah's wife, that Canaan was the offspring of that sexual act. Um, that is possible, as the offspring of the perverse act is the one who ultimately gets cursed. These are possible, but there are other possibilities as well. Uh, Wenham, a commentator, recognizes three others. The first being Noah recognized the blessings on Shem, Ham, and Japheth and could not undo God's blessing already, so he curses Canaan instead. The second is that Noah is merely mirroring the punishment since it was uh, his youngest son who dishonored him. He chose the youngest son of Ham. Uh, The third possibility is that Shem, Ham, and Japheth each personify their descendants. Uh, from Ham, for example, comes Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Two of these, Egypt and Canaan, are especially known for their perverse sexual practices. So it is possible that the curse foreshadows the descendants of Ham who act in the same way and as such. Uh, God uses Noah then to curse Canaan because of it, though why he would not also curse Egypt, too, for the same reason, puts a damper on the argument. Ultimately, We simply do not know for sure why Canaan is cursed. All we know for sure is that the effects of the curse will follow Canaan as he will be a servant of a servant, a slave of a slave to his brothers. This includes not only his brothers from Ham, but also from Shem and Japheth. Canaan will become the servant of Shem, but before that we notice how Noah blesses God through Shem. The fact that he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Um, From this we get a foreshadowing of the elect line, which will carry on the blessings of promise found within Shem. Finally, Japheth is also mentioned. He, uh, He is blessed to grow and expand. Ultimately, he is told that he would dwell in the tents of Shem. How this takes place is unknown. But for some of the early Christian writers, uh, what they saw was a parallel with the gospel. That is, they noticed that through Shem will come Abraham and ultimately Christ. Uh, Through Christ, all dwell as descendants of Abraham by faith. Thus, in this way, Japheth is seen as Gentiles, who, through Christ, dwell in the tents of Shem, who represents the Jews and Jesus. But this might be beyond the original intention. It definitely probably is. As we find later, find uh, Canaan's descendants quite literally will become the slaves of descendants of Shem, Japheth as well. So, again, when it comes to all of this, the answer is we're not sure. Um, I don't know for sure. I don't know what to tell you. It's all just a pretty murky situation. One of those dark moments in scripture. Um, that affects the course of human history. It's as simple as that. Um, all right, now comes the easy part. 28 and 29. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and then he died. All right, um, at this point, we end the Seth Taladot. As we remember, a Taladot is a section of Genesis which begins with, these are the generations of, and then it continues on through a list. Um, Noah is the last name on the list for Seth's Taladot, um, 
and ends just as those who, became, who came before him did. It tells us how long he lived and when he died. Unlike the others, it does not specify that he had many sons and daughters. Instead, we simply find his life coming to an end. Uh, despite the newness of the creation, Noah still tastes death as his forefathers had. And so despite all the good, um, there is still sorrow. All right. The main point of these verses are to establish the sons of Noah. Along with this, we find a story about Noah and his sons, especially Ham, which leads to the first term in human cursing by Noah on Canaan. We aren't sure why Canaan is cursed rather than his father, but ultimately we understand that the curse will hold true, as well as the blessings bestowed on Noah's two sons, Shem and Japheth, which again we'll see next week. How does one come up with an application point for this? <laughs> we'll see. Generational blessings and curses is what I called it. Um, this text is one of the hardest texts to deal with in Genesis. Because of the unknowns, most scholars um, are unsure of ultimate meanings. Despite this, there are some clear pictures which can be addressed without needing to deal with the more um, unclear parts. In particular... When we consider the generations of those who come from Noah and his sons, we can see that the blessings and the curses, um, they both play out. It is going to be from the line of Shem that Abram will eventually be called, as we'll find in chapter 11. And while Japheth may not be the chosen line as Seth, Shem is, the blessing is still there as generations grow and multiply. We still see more of this, um, again, later on in the chapters in Genesis. Likewise, the curses of Canaan are played out in their descendants as well. As we remember, these are the same people who take the land of Canaan itself. And the reason why God eventually gives Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan is because of their eventual wickedness. The descendants of Canaan will be seen in Genesis as Sodom and Gomorrah are brought to the forefront. And in greater studies of the region and people of Canaan, we find that they were very evil and immoral in their practices. These were people who sacrificed children, um, who had really awful, awful immoral practices. But even before we get to that, the truth is there is something to be said of where it all began. Canaan is still his father's son. Whether or not Canaan was involved with his father is disputed, but the people who came from Canaan's line, they act in similar ways. The generations of Ham show individuals who continue the trend of decay and immorality, just as Ham did. So what does this say about us? Is it possible that this kind of generational cursing is evident in our own time? Is it possible that the curses which affect these individuals are similar um, to the judgments issued by God in Romans, for example? Consider what we read in the first chapter of Romans. And this is a bit lengthy, but I have it underlined to show the point. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring um, of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that were contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What do we find from these verses? That one of the very judgments of God on people is to give them exactly what they want. We see if over and over again in these verses, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. If they do not want to serve and honor God, then God will allow them to live in their immorality, where sins will devour them into death. So what happens to such peoples whom God simply gives up to the curse? They continue in ungodliness. What happens to the sons and the daughters of the wicked? They live in the wicked ways, learning the ways of the wicked, and turn toward wickedness themselves. Thus, the curse of generation upon generation is seen when God simply gives them their heart's desires. Again, do we see this in our own time? One could argue yes. Statistically, it is more likely that if you abuse, let's say, drugs, that your children will as well. Does this mean that if someone in your family abuses drugs, then their children definitely will? Um, No, it simply means that the possibility of drug abuse increases if one's parents abuse drugs. Now, this doesn't only involve illegal substances. This can also pertain to tobacco products or alcohol. If one's parents abuse such substances, then it increases the risk of their children abusing these substances. Not only in regards to substance abuse either. When we look at the statistics for divorce, the rates increase if one's parents are divorced. If one's parents were unfaithful, the possibility of their children being unfaithful increases. The effects we have on our children are great. Granted, it is also possible that one doesn't abuse substances and a couple remains faithful to each other and still their offspring end up doing so. Thus, it isn't a guarantee by any means. Instead, it is a recognition of a possibility of these things increasing depending on their parents. So it is we see the very thing in our text and have seen it previously in Genesis when we saw what occurred with the genealogy in Cain. As we remember, Cain murdered Abel. Then eventually, his offspring, Lamech, was far worse of a person than even Cain was, glorifying in his bloodlust and murderous intent. Yet we see how the sins of one generation continue to the next generation. With Ham, it is much the same. Just as Ham was an unfaithful son, so Cain and his son and Cain's ultimate descendants would be unfaithful sons and daughters as well. Their sin would be so great that God would force them out of the land and give the land to people of Abraham. 
This reminds us of our responsibility. We are told in Proverbs 22.6, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. While these verses are not a guarantee, the truth is it is wisdom for us to train up our children in the truth because they will have a far stronger foundation in the world than if we do not. If we do not train up our children to love the Lord with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength, then the darkness, whether it be sin or the devil or the corrupt society around them, will find their weaknesses. If we do not train up our children in what it means to love God with all of their hearts, that is, with all of their affections, then they will love things other than God with their hearts and be led astray. They will tie their affections to things, whether it be greed or riches or lust. If we do not train up our children on what it means to love God with all of their minds, then arguments will be used against them to cause them to stray. Far too often, when young individuals who are part of the church uh, get to college, for example, they no longer go and attend church. Why is that so often the case? The reason is they were never fortified in their knowledge of God. The majority of teachers are hostile to religion and are naturalists by definition. Thus, when their academic professors proclaim that God doesn't exist and then give their evidence for it, those who grew up in the church have no response and then believe um, that this is the case. Meanwhile, all it would take from the church and our parents is proper training in Christian theology and philosophy. It requires parents to be diligent to train their children in the way they should go and the church to equip parents to do this. The same, though, is true of loving the Lord your God with all your soul, or that is, with their being. If they are not trained on how to love God with who they are in their personhood, then whatever gifts they have will be haphazardly scattered in their lives. Now, in Sunday school, we have been dealing with the ramifications of this as we read Total Truth. The statistic of individuals who have no idea how to use their gifts in finances, in management, in business, in art, etc., they're staggering. And so they will use the world's methods to do these things because they have not been trained on how to please God and honor God in this way with their personality, with what makes them who they are, with their gifts. Finally, when it comes to loving God with their strength, their bodies, far too many of our children are never trained to love God with their bodies, to appreciate the natural wonder that life brings and how that comes from God and how God made them as they are for his glory. Because of this, many children fall prey to using their strength for vain purposes or not even acknowledging the wonder around them, and it ultimately leads them astray. It is so easy for our children to be led astray, not because we do not have the hearts for leading them into righteousness and faithfulness to God, but because we do not properly equip them to do so. It simply isn't enough for us to be teaching our children biblical stories. We must also be showing them and training them in the way that they should go in all areas of their lives. But that requires us to know how to do it and to equip ourselves and to be doing that ourselves in faithfulness. If we don't, then we will find ourselves in a continued predicament in which the generations which come after us, our children and our grandchildren, they will continue to turn away from the truth for lies, turning away from light to darkness, simply because we couldn't provide answers 
And if we don't provide them, then others will provide answers. So what we find from this passage in Noah is the reality of blessings for those who do seek righteousness, who seek God, and who seek to be faithful to God in what he has called us to be as parents and guardians of our children and grandchildren, which he has bestowed upon us as a blessing and as a gift. Our children are ours, but they are only ours because God is gracious. As such, we have a responsibility to be vigilant in our stewardship with all the blessings God has provided for us, even our children and grandchildren, whether they be biological or spiritual. Likewise, we find a warning that the likelihood of sinfulness runs higher if we remain in sin. The generational sins are more likely to occur if we continue the trends. Things we are learning about psychologically and sociologically are evident already here long before they became a science. That the sins of the fathers will fall on the children and the grandchildren because they will know nothing more other than what their fathers and grandfathers taught them. So our encouragement from this passage is to stand firm in the faithfulness to God, first and foremost for his glory, but also for future generations. To remember how easily sin pervades families and genealogies, that sin seeks to destroy not only who we are, but our families and our progeny. So it is up to us to stand firm, remembering the darkness of sin and evil in our situations. Because it doesn't end with families. As time goes on, Cain and the man became Cain and the nation. A nation is filled with families, and as such, nations which have evil families become evil nations. It all rolls downhill. So for us to stand firm, teaching our children the truth, and to love um, in such ways will lead to stronger families and stronger faith for our children whom we love. It will help shield them against the darts of the evil one, not only aim from within the family, but also from the society around us. The best way to protect our children, then, is to be steadfast in these ways. The best way that we can continue to be the blessing is by being faithful. And by knowing the curse is quite real, that sins of the fathers very often visit the sons. So stand strong, dear Christians, for this world is full of pits and snares to devour any who would seek another way, whether it be us or our children. And you know what? We see this a lot of this in the gospel. Um, Today, we didn't really quite talk about origins, I guess a little bit, in the sense that from these three individuals and their families come all of the families of the world. Um, And this is wonderful. And they have inherited the image of God just as their fathers had, and it keeps on going generation through generation. So we do as well because we're part of the human race. And so this is all wonderful. That we have an origination from a God who is so loving, who creates us in such a magnificent way as to bear his image, each and every one of us. That's awesome. Because that means that you have dignity, you have worth, and you have sanctity to life. The problem comes with the fall again. And it's really interesting that Adam and Eve, they fell with fruit, and then Noah fell with the vine. And how that ultimately all ties in together again. But we see elements of the fall here in Noah. We see elements of 
how God says in chapter um, 8, how even though the hearts of man is wicked from his youth, I will not destroy the earth again in this way. The next chapter we see the hearts of men evil from their youth with Ham, the youngest, doing something worthy of judgment. And so when it comes to the fall, we see it. And that's the reason why generational curses exist, because of the fall. Because ultimately, the sins of the fathers do very often fall to the sons. And it's because we are in sin. Now the question is, are we hopeless? You know, did your parents have issues like this? Did your parents fail miserably? Did they fail in their righteousness and their faithfulness to God? Does that mean that you're going to as well? The answer is, thankfully, no. How do I know that? Because of redemption. Because even if we do live in families that have these generational curses, and we can point back all the way from generation to generation how this affected each one of our generation. I can say that on my mom's side. Alcoholism. All the way through my mother's side. Even up to my mother herself, to a point. Until redemption came. I don't suffer from that. Thank God. But the point is that I could have. (laughs) Very easily. If not for redemption. If not for the fact that ultimately we are not mere constructs which ultimately lead to the sin of our fathers because they sin, we're going to do it. God can redeem us. God can redeem you. He can redeem our parents who are stuck in it. He can redeem our grandparents who are stuck in it. He can redeem the next generation. We don't lose hope. We are not a people who are hopeless. We are people who recognize that God is good. And that through Jesus Christ, there is redemption. Even for these. And praise God. And so when we look around our society, I mean, let's be real. We can look around Westfield and say, generational curses. (laughs) If you look hard enough. You don't have to probably look that hard. But you can. You can say, look at how the generations keep on living in the same patterns over and over and over again. And you could say, I'm done. But I would say, God can change that. You see a dark situation, God can bring light to that. So we don't lose hope. Even in the society around us, we do not lose hope. Because Christ has come, Christ has risen, Christ has conquered. And you know what? He can conquer this too. Praise God. And ultimately that leads us to the future. Because for those who are redeemed, for those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus, we're going to a place where all these generational curses will no longer ever be in our minds. And all the sorrow that we've seen from other families and our own families, they're not going to be there anymore. And instead we're going to have one family which is made pure, which is perfect, which is lovely. And we will all rejoice. So it is, that's where our hope lies. And the encouragement from this story is to be like Shem and Japheth. (laughs) To be honorable. To be individuals who will seek obedience and faithfulness. And ultimately to remember that there's hope.
Because from Shem comes Abram, comes Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you so much for this story, even though we don't even understand all of it. Um, But even though we don't understand it, Lord, you still give us the means to recognize truths about our society, about ourselves, about our families, which lead us to your glory. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to guide us in our minds, that you would continue to guide us in the glory of your son, Jesus and that ultimately we would seek out your will. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have accomplished. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our second to final hymn. And I am forgetting what that is right now. All the way my Savior leads me, number 505, and we'll sing all of it. Amen. You may be seated. Before we take of communion, um, we also ask that if anyone feels called led um, to give to the diaconate fund, that they would. Um, The diaconate fund is used, again, very wisely by our deaconesses and our deacon to glorify God here in Westfield and within this church community. Um, So if you feel led at this time to give, 
please do. Um, and know that whatever gift you give to this fund is used for good. Um, so let us pray over that, and then we'll continue forward. Father, we thank you so much for our deaconesses and our deacon, and we ask that you would continue to bless the diaconate board as they continue to seek out your will and your glory uh, within this congregation and within Westfield. Again, we thank you above all else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we partake of communion together, um, we're reminded of what Christ has done for us, each of us individually, and how that leads to an individual and communities. How we get to partake of this feast together as brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what our age. Um, And that the familial bond between all of us cannot be separated by anything the devil may attempt to do. And that ultimately the relationship we have with Christ could never be separated by anything. Um, And every time we partake, I always am reminded of Romans 8, when neither height nor depth, nor angels nor demons, nor things above nor things below, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. That's what all this reminds us of. Nothing can separate us from Jesus. So let us pray over the bread. Father, we ask for your blessing as we partake of the bread, which was broken for us. And as Jesus said these words, and as we're reminded of these things, let us always have at the forefront of our hearts that your son reigns, and that though his body was broken, it was also renewed. And it was broken for us and renewed for us, and so we praise you. So bless these things, Lord, as we partake. In your son's name we pray. Amen.
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now let us pray over the cup. Father, we thank you for the blood that was shed for us. How through Jesus Christ, his blood brings about the new covenant, which is eternal, which is everlasting, which says that there is peace between God and man for those who are covered by the blood. So as we partake today, Lord, let us remember what Christ has done for us. And through him, we, Lord, are your children. We thank you. Amen. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.